Conrad Leviser, a.k.a. Dad. Welcome to Hungry Minds, the podcast about the power of curiosity, questions, and dwelling in possibility. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be here, of course. An honor, Ryan. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and just with the very nature of the podcast, the theme itself, uh, curiosity and questions and possibility, there's no better person I could think of that has embodied those qualities than yourself. And there's no better person I could think of than, than you that's helped to really foster those, those qualities within myself and not only rest of the family, but many of our friends as well. So, so this is going to be fun. Um, there are many things we have talked about throughout our lives. There's many things that we will continue. We're going to have a somewhat narrow focus, although in and of itself it uh, is quite wide, which is travel. And so I'm going to give your bio, which is brief, but will give people a sense of who you are and some of the things that you've done. So you've conducted travel groups throughout over 120 countries, and you've worked as a wild river rafting guide in the western United States. Um, you're one of the first, I guess, commercial river guides, and many of the people you knew that ran rivers back in the day went on to found all the major companies. Uh, one of the poems I think you'll read tonight is, uh, is from one of these exploratory trips in South America. You also created a 49-mile scenic walk for the San Francisco Ecology Center, and directed the Lodestar International Student Center for the University of California's International House at uh, Berkeley. And then you were a world's travel destination consultant for a long time, and then currently you are uh, the director of community relations and development for Ironstone Vineyards. And in addition to those more professional things, you've also, you're also a published poet, a painter. Um, you've given a range of different talks and workshops on creativity. Um, so a real renaissance man. Uh, anyway, that, that is the short bio. Is there anything else you want to add? Anything I, I missed? That pretty much traps it, <laughs> wraps it up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I guess one of the things, uh, given we're going to focus on uh, travel, and we're gonna, the way we're going to structure this is you're going to read a range of poems that traverse the globe, and then we'll... Uh, have a conversation about each of those poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get into that, how did you get into travel? So when I finished uh, college out of Chicago, I went back to my hometown of Boston. And I thought I was going to write for one of the Boston papers. But then I heard of this uh, travel company, uh, AITS, American International Travel Association, was looking for a tour director to take groups to Hawaii from the East Coast. Uh, I said, you can actually get paid for doing that. Um, right. They wound up with one of the first all-inclusive charter groups. These were big groups initially. Uh, and they, uh, a trip that sold very well for them was what was, and it was some of these, uh, so a group, for instance, was about 180 people. It was on a chartered plane that included restaurants, hotels, meals, Three nights in Las Vegas, a uh, week in Hawaii, and three nights in San Francisco. And it was very successful. It allowed a lot of people at a very rock-bottom price uh, to be able to travel to, which were dreams for many people. Uh, I found that I could, uh, I did very well with that, dealing with restaurants, hotels, just the whole initial travel industry. Uh, 
And then uh, they sent me out to San Francisco to help open a youth travel division. They had wanted me to get into uh, management. I was single. I wanted to travel with smaller groups. And, and through that, from Hawaii, I also went down and I was an assistant cruise director down uh, off the east coast of South America. They sent me into uh, the uh, Asia, the Orient, was just opening up uh, pretty much uh, Eastern and Western Europe. And so I had, in a very short period of time, a pretty uh, interesting uh, foundation for travel. And uh, But I wanted to deal with smaller groups going to more remote areas. I took a leave of absence from the company. They wanted to move the office back to Boston. This was San Francisco, 1970. I really loved San Francisco, and I thought this would be a good base camp uh, to continue from there. So I researched every travel company in the United States on an international level, and I uh, uh, found this travel company, Travcoa Travel Corporation of America, which was out of Chicago. They ultimately wound up down uh, in uh, Southern California in Newport Beach. And they were dealing with small groups. It could be anywhere from a dozen to two dozen people, uh, really going extensively through Central South America, Africa, Asia, uh, pretty much right across the Pacific and Indian Ocean. And so I sent up a resume, and they hired me, and uh, one trip <clears throat> kept leading to another. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's kind of a, a, kind of a capsule. Right. And, I, uh, and most of these places at that time, I was going into, you know, and your average American didn't know where these places were on the map, let alone you could actually get there. Uh, but that has, which we might get into, has been uh, the whole planet has been tracked out and mapped. And, uh, yeah, we are. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I'll put in a, just a little uh, anecdotal thing. I mean, the, a person who affected me very deeply was one of our astronauts, Rusty Schweikert. And Rusty had come back from a flight in space, and he was giving a talk, and he said, you know, as an astronaut, you're uh, an engineer, you're a technician, you don't have much time for metaphysical thought. But I had an hour when I stepped outside that spacecraft when I had no technological uh, responsibilities. And he said, um, we, at that point, we were traveling over one continent after another. I stepped back into the spacecraft, and I realized later, I intuitively realized what I had before intellectually known, that there were no boundaries between cultures, of course, to those who are politically right. uh, you know, evolved, and that we were, in fact, uh, global citizens, uh, planetary culture, and he said that every astronaut that went into space was affected in some way or another. I mean, many times not always positive, sometimes was negative. Right. Uh, Edgar Mitchell started the uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, right. exploring levels of uh, consciousness. So simplifying it. But at that time, I probably had taken groups to uh, just over 100 countries. And I realized that uh, I had that similar experience on a, a less intense level. Uh, but that uh, that I also, in, in the travel that I had done, I no longer thought linearly as I was schooled, but much more multidimensionally. And so that kind of would set the stage for me in terms of, uh, you know, shift of consciousness that I had experienced myself was a metaphor for that very shift. Absolutely. I think now it's there's actually a psychological term called the overview effect that astronauts now have, as many have gone to space, 
And I love it. I introduced that to my class of saying that's the lens we'll look at, whether it be world history or world religion from this unified point of view, all kind of emanating from one earth. But I'm glad you shared that anecdote because that, of course, my, that captures the ethos of your travels, of your poetry, of your worldview, which was naturally the very worldview that you raised your family within. So therefore, it's no surprise that that is something that I share. And so it's interesting just to trace uh, the the threads to the origin. Um, before moving on, I do think it's worth getting a sense of uh, how you became a world uh, wild river rafting guide as well. So when did that happen within this context of leading people throughout the world? How did you get into running rivers? Yeah, I love that question, actually. And when you, before we just started this, I hadn't been thinking about it, but uh, it suddenly hit upon me. <clears throat> so uh, back, I was raised in Lynn, just outside of Boston. I wound up living in Boston for about six years before moving to San Francisco. But uh, grade school, we went to the Boston Museum of Science for a day's kind of an out trip. Or out yeah. And there was a, all I remember of that trip was there was a, a side room where there was this video going on about the Grand Canyon. And there was a, and, and these guys and uh, that, and probably some women as well, I mean, just people that were running uh, the Colorado River in these big rafts. And somehow that image really struck me. And so I went home, I said to my mother, you know, mommy, when I grow up, I want to go to the Grand Canyon and I want to go down in one of those boats down the Colorado River. <laughs> and so that image stayed with me. Uh, and when I first started, I mean, actually with this AITS, and we would go to Las Vegas, and this was like the late 60s in Las Vegas, and we'd do these flight-seeing tours around the Grand Canyon. And uh, I was just mesmerized by the canyon and then... I researched every travel company, I mean, you know, adventure right. travel company running trips on the Colorado River. And I sent away uh, letters to them at that time. And, uh, and when I had the time, I didn't have the money. When I had the money, I didn't have the time. So uh, years later, out in San Francisco, I'd already been doing this international travel. And uh, a woman who I went to uh, college with... Terry Dangerfield at that time was uh, having to be, she was a flight attendant for uh, United Airlines. And uh, she was in town uh, for an overnight. She called me, we got together for dinner. And in the course of the conversation, she said, you know, uh, something came in the mail my, on my, my husband's, uh, to my husband. And it was about this, uh, and made me think immediately of you. And I said, well, what was it? And she said, well, there's this company, ARDA, it was American River Association, uh, River Touring Association out of Oakland. And they were putting together the first uh, five-week intensive wild river rafting uh, kind of symposium, a guidesmanship uh, uh, seminar, not seminar, it's a, you know experience on the, the river. And it was happening. I, I said, well, when you get back to Chicago, please send me that. So she overnighted it to me, and I, it was happening the next week. I hitchhiked over to Oakland. I walked into the Arta office and uh, talked with Rob Elliott, who was the son of the, the, the guy who actually formed Arta, 
and we became good friends later. And I said, all I know is I'm supposed to be at your, you know, at this whitewater school next week. Well, the short story is, so I did that for five weeks. It was uh, amazing. And, uh, of course, the next, they wanted to hire me as a guide for the uh, next year. And so uh, to cut to the quick about what, five years right. later, I finally, uh, after uh, running rivers in uh, California, Idaho, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, I, uh, a friend of mine, we were, I was asked to be on this private three-week trip through down to Colorado through the Grand Canyon. Uh, yeah. And it was with all other professional river guides. So we had this three-week amazing trip. It was equivalent, to, uh, for me, of a pilgrimage to Mecca and had all this time to explore the side canyons, hike over the canyons. And, uh, and we were the first ones, I think, to take these 10-man uh, 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 army uh, rafts down there. So the, to me, the point of that was, uh, that extended way beyond that, was that sense of visions, when we have right. a vision. And sometimes our visions are small when we look back right. at it. And so I had a small vision of what I wanted to do. I would have been very happy just to run the trip. But the, the reality is it took years for that particular vision to come into fruition. But when I did, it was beyond. The vision was larger than I could have contained right. as, a, as, a, you know, as a grade school kid. And that to go down with other professional guides and guides who knew the Grand Canyon like the back of their hands. Uh, so that metaphor uh, really uh, stayed in my mind and I carried in many other places as well as when sometimes we want something to happen very suddenly, and some things do, but many times it takes a while to get to that point when we're ready to be able to contain that particular vision. Absolutely. I think what's interesting about that is it seems so much of you, how your professional career and life in general has unfolded is a sense of serendipity, but perhaps in connection with this this larger vision um, that maybe one only sees in retrospect, which reminds me of that Rilke quote from, I think, Letters to a Young Poet about the importance of living the questions, even if at certain phases of our life we are given the answers, we couldn't quite comprehend the answer. And so sense of living with that sense of uncertainty and the unknown um, while challenging is ultimately an answer um, that's how one day we'll maybe sort of live into the answer and it sounded like the the whole uh, wild river rafting guidesmanship follows uh, that kind of arc so also I think what's important to, to touch upon uh, briefly, because this is a podcast in and of itself, before getting into the travel poems and the conversation, you're also a poet. You're also an artist. Um, creativity is, uh, has been central uh, to, to who you are. So how did you get into um, poetry or art or the, I guess, the arts in general? Um, while that's probably a longer story I guess what's what's a good place to introduce that why poetry why did this turn out to be a medium while raising a family while running rivers while traveling the world that seemed to work within that lifestyle I have no idea <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> Perfect answer, right? Yeah, sometimes it's just... Well, I want to back are... it up because I like what you say about hungry minds, <laughs> curiosity, questions, possibility. And I like right. what you said, that rookie quote, living the questions. And right. it is like living the questions or what today we're seeing more, which has been around for centuries, a sense of mindfulness, mm-hmm. a sense of being in the moment, the sense of adapting ourselves to the nature of reality as it is. And that's everybody's going to interpret that, see it a little bit differently at, right. over against how we would like it to be an idealism. Right. We have to have this idealistic perspective that sparks us to get going. But to me, it's always <laughs> trend. And if we could see what we're going to go through, we wouldn't do anything. You know, uh, <laughs> Fuck this. We wouldn't leave the house. We'd lock the door. <laughs> we're going into our backyard. Right. So I just think it it's more, you know, living the question itself and adapting to the present moment and that openness in some ways. It's right. beyond what we could think by taking it a step at a time and being in the moment. Right. It leads us to places that we could never have imagined. And we might have a vision, but if we it would be more straight, linear, straight line, we'd think to get to it. But it, it's never. It's more like a labyrinth. And then suddenly we're at a point, I feel, when we've given it up, so to speak, where it's like something I always felt taps you on your shoulder from behind you and you turn around and there's a moment, a possibility, a window of opportunity. And because you've done all the groundwork... Because you've done the everyday practice and put in all the time it takes to perfect anything, whether right. it's you know playing an instrument or you know creating a business or whatever it takes, it takes a lot of work. And then suddenly there's that opportunity of or that possibility, right. as you might say, that uh, opens up. And yet the questions you've been asking, the curiosity you've been right. able, brings you to that moment, and either you move through it because it could close. Right. But if you've done the work, then it and that's and that takes you into a, an element usually that again it's a it's more expanded aspect of what right. you think. But it's uh, yeah, and then I think uh, you know about your your question about I if if I had a thought of myself as a, I never thought of myself as a poet. Or as an artist per se, right. because if I did, I had no kind of schooling or preparation for that. That I wouldn't have, uh, you know, if I compared myself to what I thought that was, I wouldn't have done anything. Right. But it was almost, to me, almost a part of a psychological development. Right. It was almost a necessity for my own sense of balance or uh, mm-hmm. sanity. So I started, you know, to write, and uh, and I don't think I was, uh, and I just, I guess at uh, it, things started coming through me, but it was probably it was pretty much at first kept to myself. Right. And I think with art, I just uh, I had no nobody was ever saying that I had any potential as an artist. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I think I started in uh, journals doodling, and then at some point I started coloring the doodles, and then expand out the designs, and then filled you know journals, and I started doing these multi-dimensional journals, and whether it's working with you know, art and collage, but I always thought of it as like a psychological tool that really helped balance out a lot of the other more straightforward things I was doing in the world. And so that level uh, for me, and as we've talked many times, I I always felt that with all this outer exploration, it was equally important for me to be able to explore the inner levels, you know, uh, meditative levels, uh, and, and for everybody's going to have a different balance of what that is. But uh, without that 
uh, anyways, for me, it was the necessity right. of balance uh, always, you know, right. the inner exploration with the outer exploration. Right. Well, I think that's interesting because on one hand, you know, that's a very similar outlook that I have. Just everybody is creative in some capacity that can be expressed differently because if everyone truly in essence has a unique perspective then how that perspective is expressed can be creative there's a lot of conformity Mm -hmm. and so forth but i really like that that has served the basis of how i generally teach everyone has a desire to you know uniquely interact with whatever the material might be and then express whatever their understanding might be uh, we see someone like Kevin Ford, who we obviously both know very well, um, who is professionally a filmmaker, but a huge part of it is this way of, is he's expressed to me, you know, trying to understand himself. Right. Uh, and then you have someone like Joey Wolf, who you also know, who studied art in college, and now he works for a bank. But creativity is really central to who he is, from cooking to surfing right. to comedy to various things. So I think that spectrum is really interesting and, and worthy to tie in because that will be the connective tissue of these mm-hmm. stories, is, right. is this poetry. So, uh, so I guess without further shenanigans and ado, maybe we should dive, dive into it. Uh, I, And as I may have alluded to earlier, uh, inevitably, this will just be scratching the surface of not only your poetry, but also of, uh, you know, where you've traveled. And so we just tried to choose a selection of uh, poems that at least had some sort of diverse representation of where you've been and so forth. So, yeah, what do you want to what do you want to start with? Well, you had mentioned a few different things that yeah. kind of jumped out at you. And this is... Uh, so this is like what uh, one of the books you had picked up uh, that I published, uh, The Spirits Can't Get You on the Stairs, and it's basically travel poems from 1972 to 1976. And a lot of the times I didn't necessarily write the dates. In this point, the period I could attract it, so it was some of my early travels... And the one you had commented on, it was it was one out of a trilogy of snakes, All right. and uh, that came out of East Africa. And the uh, and I think for people, people's greatest fears, uh, basically, the people's greatest fear is speaking in front of a group of people. <laughs> and the second greatest fear is snakes. <laughs> well, people over here. Probably the chances of people running into snakes are much less than having to get up in front of a group or a class or anything and speak. And so for me, that was a that was a, a thing. I was I think I was pretty shy as a kid, and then just started you know being drawn into you know speaking you know uh, in kind of high school politics and having to get up in front of the school. And then ultimately, there was something in me that uh, as 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 I might have felt initially that, you know, that fear of being right. in front of a group of people, uh, that I knew that I would be, I wound up talking to thousands of people and having right. all kinds of groups. And, uh, but the snakes one, so the, the, uh, I don't think I've ever wrote a poem about speaking in front of a group of people, but I think <laughs> I've had to speak in front of a group of people about snakes and just about all other kinds of animals. And so there was this, uh, this was out of Zaire, and, uh, well, I'll read it. Yeah, and go ahead. Snakes won out of a trilogy, and so 
Heading back to Lodge, crossing small creek bridge, I see a python with mouth stretched full of antelope, rear half of its belly and legs jutting out like sausage. It's a cob, horns broken by the squeezing huge rolling muscles. My head and heart roll with vision of earlier prancing cobs. This is no supermarket meal. It is an awful, beautiful feast. I go down and touch the silken, mandelic weave of the snake. The ground beats like a huge drum, ready to swallow me. The devouring mouth is too full to be bothered. Ranger says, Park rules we must leave at dusk. Before sunrise, we're back at the bridge. No python. Can see in tracks where Cobb came down for water. Python floated out of bush, circled, and grabbed it. Track the retreated, full-bellied swirl marks. Around hilly bend, we stop. Pride of lions tracking us. Backtrack to van. End of story. <laughs> right. Well, given there is a trilogy of, of snake stories, the one that has always come to mind for me, which might just be worth telling, um, is the one with the mamba in the van that's staring you in the face. Yeah. Just because I think w- with that, like that one in particular gives one the sense of uh, that life was hanging in the balance. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that hanging in the balance. Yeah, well, Maybe you can add that to curiosity questions, <laughs> possibility, and hanging in the balance. Yeah, that's definitely a fourth, a fourth theme. Because I've definitely hung in the balance a few times, and when you're least expecting it, but... At the same time, that hanging in the balance can be a real gift. Right. And if you had to think about it, or again, what we were t- maybe talking about a little bit earlier, you would never think you would be able to handle it, or uh, you would walk in the other direction. Right. So uh, this, well, let's, so Snakes 2 out of the trilogy was in Rwanda. In Rwanda, before kind of the Holocaust that took place over there, was amazing in terms of its game parks, and it was uh, pretty rough roads and everything else, but uh, phenomenal levels of game. So it was a dirt road, and we were out all day at, uh, you know, tracking, uh, you know, in these vans, games, and having extraordinary experiences. So coming back, and it was hot, and I was uh, a little bit drowsy, and I wasn't, my head was kind of nodding a little bit. Uh, so up in the uh, front of the van was the the, uh, rain, uh, the guide driving. It was like a VW van, old VW van. And then the ranger uh, next to him, local ranger. And I was kind of behind them. And I had a few people, you know, in the, in the van also with me, a part of my group. So I'm tired. I'm, uh, I'm just about to doze. Just about to doze when I see black mamba's eyes three feet from mine to the VW van's open window. The game ranger, who is sitting in front of me, is climbing a rope of terror up through the pullback roof. The driver, panicking, stalls, then floods the engine. 
I sit entranced with the deadly snake. It had just been a long log on the dirt road before it lifted itself to meet me. Five feet off the ground, supported by a lot more bodies circled in the dust. Piercing eyes hypnotically sing me. Then quickly it turns and vanishes into the gardening brush. Its spit could have blinded me. Its bite could have killed. The ranger climbs shaking back down into his seat. The driver's arm melts back into function on gear shift. They both look back at me with wide, questioning eyes. All I can say is, it was beautiful. I'm wide awake for the rest of the day. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, that's always one that's definitely stayed in my mind. So... Obviously, there's many stories about Africa that you can tell. However, before we move on to some other poems, there's one story that you have to tell that you've never written a poem about that uh, easily was uh, your life was hanging in the balance in a, in a very different kind of way. Did it also take place in Rwanda or was Uganda, uh, the gorilla? It was in Rwanda. Yeah, so, so, so you got to tell this story. This is one of the classics, and it seems like there's no better time that now as you're talking about Africa. So how do you want to set the stage for this? (laughs) So this is, you know, (laughs) being in the moment. Uh, So uh, we were tracking gorillas in Rwanda in Rwanzori mountain range, and you would start at about uh, 7,000 foot level, and, uh, you know, it would take you anywhere from you know a couple of hours, several hours to locate a uh, uh, a family, a male silverback, several females and young. But whenever you did, whenever we did, you were able to literally get in there and uh, sit amongst them as close as we are to each other. A very gentle uh, species, but the uh, silverback, of course, is uh, very protective. So I had to brief the groups. Uh, it could very well be when we approached that he could come out charging, uh, beating his chest, and screaming. And if this were to happen, you had to immediately drop to your hands and knees in a submissive posture. Uh, well, of course, people's response was, Conrad, what happens if I panic and go running in the opposite direction at the last minute? My response was, uh, don't worry, if this male comes out charging, beating his chest and screaming, uh, you'll drop to the submissive posture like you've known it from birth. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen people move so fast in the ground in their life. Uh, so uh, he would realize you're not, a, and you know, again, you had to uh, be on your hands and knees. You couldn't, uh, you know, again, look him in the eyes or smile or show your teeth because he might consider it's an aggressive act. Uh, so uh, we, at this point, you're exhausted because it's pretty wild terrain you're going through, and suddenly, again, that sense of whatever adrenaline, you're wide awake, and people are in there. And I think the first time I ever made contact with a male silverback, he was sitting, he got up and moved across from me and sat next to me. He was leaning into me, chewing a piece of bamboo, uh, we're looking at each other uh, out of the corner of our eyes. I quickly grabbed the piece of bamboo, started to chew it, 
Uh, I thought I was looking into the eyes of my great-grandfather. I thought the silverback knew my name, social security number, where I was born. Uh, whatever I thought gorilla was went up through the trees. Uh, well, hold on, but I th- but you didn't. Uh, you you sort of glossed over the most important thing when he charged you. Well, the, so, what, so no, yeah, this that, is not. This is, oh, this is the first time. Story. Yeah. Oh, another. I, so we had located this oh, this okay. uh, group, and there were basically uh, females and young, but the, the silverback was being very elusive. And so the ranger said, you know, and this if I had a group of like 18 people, I'd have to break it down to like groups of six. And that might be over two, three year through three day period when you just go in for the impact. And uh, and so the ranger said, you know, the male is in the area, but do you want to continue to track it? Well, I did, of course. And then I had a young (laughs) couple who are filmmakers out of New York. And they did too, and several other people were very happy just to be there with the females and the young. So we began to continue to track it, and we're through, it was like leading through this maze of brush. Uh, and the uh, and at some point, the the ranger would just go, <clears throat> and it'd be like a silence, and we'd just <clears throat> coming back. So we knew that the silverback was there and he was kind of leading us on this little trail <laughs> and this went on for about an hour and then suddenly we came around this bend like a pretty overgrown uh bend and uh and the ranger was up in front the couple and then i was in the back and then just as this couple and i got around this corner i, I literally could smell this silverback and we came around this bend and it was basically this gorilla shed on the ground, uh, and he almost like as if he was waiting till we were right over it. And then uh, I had this, I could feel like that, the hairs in the back of my head just kind of stand up. And I suddenly heard this loud, and it was as if the gorilla, the silverback, was right in my left ear, and he was probably about six feet away from me in the, in the brush. And the couple and I immediately dropped right down into this gorilla scat. Uh, so misses we could possibly be. Uh, he, uh, the, uh, the woman, I think, these are professional photographers, uh, couldn't even function with her camera. And mm-hmm. the guy was, you know, at, you know stop still. So he kind of pulled off and went over this knoll, and we kind of, the ranger looked at me and kind of nodded for me to follow. So I came over this knoll in a crouch, and his back was to me, but I could see there were a couple of females and some young in the bushes. And suddenly it was, you know, he could sense me or smell me, and he kind of whirled around and looked directly at me. And I thought that he thought, this guy hasn't had enough. So he immediately full-on charged me. Well, at this point, I was saying, I wasn't even thinking, you know, and instinctively said, you know, forget getting on my hands and knees in a submissive posture. I immediately dropped it a flat on my back on the ground, <laughs> as submissive I could possibly be. And uh, this silverback was right over me with his, you know, uh, his front... <laughs> legs on the ground and his head was probably a foot over my chest <laughs> moving his hand and slightly looking down at me and really checking to be sure I was submissive and my arm I probably had kind of an instamatic camera 
I don't know, it was so bizarre, stretched out in the uh, the Ranger or something. I think he was saying, like, great picture. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to move my arm fraction of an inch. <laughs> I mean, the picture was embedded in my cerebral cortex for the rest of my life. And then suddenly he thought uh, that I was submissive enough. He kind of pulled back and then went over. Well, to, you know, the uh, the couple, the guy of the, the the gentleman of the couple, tells me later that he thought it was all over for me and that he was next. <laughs> yeah, right. So, anyways, we wind up crawling. Uh, really hands and like just crawling up over this knoll and then we wound up you know kind of hanging out with the silverback and the uh, females and uh, the young for another hour but uh, I think there's something about that story and I think in many in many different ways you know and uh, tracking silverbacks which are you know really seriously endangered species uh, that really resonates something deep inside the people because it's not that far or longer long ago when we were all well not just silverbacks I mean but in, in the in terms of what's happening in Africa with animals uh, closely connected and living I mean in, right. even in our own country right I mean whether you read tales you know with buffalo and just the bird populations in California before the gold rush and on and on and so there's a deep interconnective uh, spirit in some way for people right. who have never even maybe uh, gone out and looked at a bird, you know, right. but there's something archaic in it. And I think it is that, you know, connectivity and, I, you, you know, you follow that connectivity. Of course, it goes back to uh, East Africa in many ways, uh, the place where man was born. And, and so I... Th uh, and many people when I, that have, you know, that I've talked to over the years who have gone to Africa when I ask them and they're kind of reluctant at, at times to say, and they'll say, well, it was really kind of a spiritual experience. Right. right? And so that kind of, kind of opens up that level of what that means, you know. But I think it's that interconnectivity, not just with the, uh, you know, animal species, but a sense of the land, the planet, the earth. Right. That kind of goes deep. And so there are certain levels of experience. And even with, like, you know, whether it's the snakes or anything else, when it brings you fully into the moment and we just you know, realize the, the, both that, that sense of uh, awareness, but the fragility at the same time. So it's kind of a strength and fragility to come together and fuse together at a particular moment. And you never know right. when that's going to happen. Sometimes it really comes on you. At, with, uh, it's like a gift as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Right. Well, it makes me <clears throat> think that we all are, in fact, animals. Mm -hmm. And when we have those encounters, we recognize what kind of animal we are and we aren't. And for most uh, for most close encounters, we realize that there's a reason why we've developed weapons and tools and shelter and civilization yeah. to shield us from an environment where, frankly, one-on-one, -on -one, we're pretty quickly dinner. <laughs> and uh, it's very easy to fool ourselves, you know, of that. So I think that, yeah, that, that makes a, a, lot of, a lot of sense. Uh, now... Uh, yeah, I easily am tempted to just go deeper into Africa, but uh, to I guess somewhat follow uh, this thread we've we've thrown out there. Uh, so Africa, is there anything else about Africa? I think that you tied in that cradle of civilization, the tremendous biodiversity. But is there anything else about Africa that uh, has sort of etched itself into your 
into your bones and memory that comes comes to mind before moving on to another part of the world? Yeah, we can move on. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, some yeah. of the, uh, I you know, really, you know, deep moments I've had, whether it's in Africa or it's just, you know, having some kind of contact with, uh, you know, various levels. Uh, it could be the Galapagos Islands, it yeah. could be many places, it could be jaguars down in, you know, in, uh, you know, Central South America that are just, you know, uh, brings you in at the same time to right. that kind of a moment. So, uh but we, I, could, we could kind of jump. Yeah, move, move around. I think the next one is, is it lava. Yeah. So this isn't so much with animals, but no. it's with uh, volcanic activity, right. which is its own kind of uh, way of waking one up, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. I guess this is the theme, right? Uh, being from drowsy uh, <laughs> jet jet lag to being wide awake. Then you have to go through all of that to get to some of these moments, and they and they come on you unexpectedly. So this is, again, in the context of the time level. I mean, again, where these are early, uh, the, some of the early right. poems I had, uh, you know, put together and published back seventy two, seventy six. 76. So it was like just basically transversing across all the island groups of the Pacific and Indian Ocean and getting out to, uh, this is in Vanuatu, Tana Island. Uh, and it was uh, so... I mean, this day, I mean, back then, relatively few people, I mean, maybe during uh, the war when troops were going out to these areas, that's mm -hmm. when they had really only time that took a lot of Americans because right. they were stationed out there fighting during uh, World War II. Uh, and the, uh, so one of these islands, it just so happens, we, you know, we just traversed it uh, across in, you know, in, in Land Rovers. There were probably a small group of about a dozen people and there was on uh, so uh, this uh, on Tana Island, uh, this volcano, yes, sir, was an active volcano. And today you think with liability insurance and everything else. And so we <laughs> were be doing basically <laughs> climbing up this volcano in its loose lava, you know, ash. And, uh, and uh, you'd take two steps forward, one step back. And these were people that were, you know, older professionals, some early retired people that were really interested in going to these places that have been dreams in their life uh, and when they were, you know, throughout their life had an opportunity to do it. And uh, so we're climbing up this volcano, uh, and this is where this came from. So loose black volcanic ash, hot sulfuric bellows belch, molten lava chunks, hundreds of feet in the air. I instinctively backstep away from Yasur's roaring, trembling edge. Anyway, I'm going to interject here. I mean, these were literally, this was explosively uh, throwing these hot lava chunks in the air. And at one point, this massive rock lands about, <laughs> you know, 15, 20 feet from it <laughs> in this hot, white, you know, yeah, right. rock. And, uh, and we're just up there... <laughs> No crash helmets on, no safety <laughs> ropes. Ah, the nothing. 70s. And nobody was like, nobody was saying, like, what in the world are we doing up here? It was yeah. like, it was just a part of the experience that only <laughs> crazies like us would have been, you know, going. So I instinctively backstep away from Rush, yeah, Sir's roaring, trembling edge. So better understand tales of old chiefs sacrificing virgins to assuage the angry gods. Better 
understand tales of old chiefs being sacrificed to the virgin mystery that pervades us all. Right. So that, I mean, to me, the, uh, the experience of that was all one's schooling, all these years of studying and schooling and trying to understand history and all the rest. And right when you're out there in a position like that, you're taken right down to ground zero. I mean, what we call, and I guess it would lead into what I would uh, feel in you know, traveling to the remote areas of the world. And I think when uh, through college schooling, et cetera, and we would hear the word primitive, uh, you know, uh, tacked on to very tribal cultures. It was never, it would always have kind of a negative, you know, range to it, like they weren't mm -hmm. as developed. But my experience was, uh, from the very beginning, was the, uh, the word primitive didn't mean that at all to me. That there were, many times, a lot of these tribes, whether in the Amazon jungle or many other places, if they were untouched, by you know colonial civilization that kind of shifted and changed the parameters, uh, and not to idealize them, but they were highly developed in their level of adaptation to a particular level of environment, in ways that you know we would be helpless in if we were suddenly right. dropped into some of these things, and so uh, and then again what we uh, sometimes judge other civilizations, not to make them right, I don't want to idealize anything, right. but I mean, just, you know, adapting to life right. as you're faced with exactly. it, that they were, uh, and so experiences like that, I think, uh, you know, you, you brought me back that it's like very easy to have all this, what you think of, you mm -hmm. you've learned just completely wiped out for the moment, that oh, what does yeah. it really mean in that place or moment right. at that particular time? Right. And, uh, and so I think that's what that particular experience, you know, kind of brought brought right. to me right again down to right ground. Well, what I think is it, what makes me think of when you mention that <clears throat> in my own limited experience in comparison to yours traveling around the world, I would say that it confirms that looking at indigenous cultures, but yours, of course, is far more extensive. Uh, but one thing that comes to mind for me is Japan and how tectonically active that is islands are, the volcanoes, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, um, have just, you know, time and time again, uh, really shaped the island and the culture. And we think of Japan aesthetically as one of the most refined of cultures in the world. Right. Um, an analog to the, you know, to the West, obviously influenced by it later, but... China, of course, but what's interesting to me, just to mention what you're saying, is that so much of their aesthetics and philosophy have been rooted within that sense of understanding of the forces of nature and, and the wabi-sabi aesthetic out of uh, Japanese uh, or Zen Buddhism, also influenced by Taoism from China, but their own understanding of uh, the flux and flow of nature is finding beauty in the imperfect and impermanent and incomplete, which to me seems like that's the very foundation of any kind of, quote, primitive knowledge or indigenous knowledge. Anyone that's close to the land sees that. And, and therefore, we now recognize increasingly that that has uh, paramount importance as a counterbalance to our... Uh, Greco-Roman kind of form of aesthetics and order and permanence and linearity and 
so forth. So I think, yeah, there's a lot to learn, and that's something, one of the main reasons why I studied anthropology, right. you know, in college, because of those uh, poems and stories and yeah. wanting to, to take a deeper dive myself. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think my, what might be up next in the queue is the transactions. And this is Papua New Guinea, perhaps, yeah. or maybe I'm not reading the... Right, but yeah. I know that that's always been a pretty powerful place for you just because of the the native yeah. uh, culture, right? Is there anything you want to say about Papua New Guinea before? I know you've lots of stories. We had lots of masks <laughs> in, the, in the house. Right. Growing up. So this was a simple... Uh, level of that, you know, that, that kind of a juxtaposition. And I was up in the New Guinea highlands, uh, and, you know, uh, that was, so basically standing in line to exchange money in the bank, a tribesman, naked, but for penis sheath, feathers and spear stands in front of me. Reminder of the real credit line of savings they can never be protected by a steel-locked vault. So I think, you know, Papua New Guinea for me, and I think back in maybe 1970, and I haven't, you know, really, you know, uh, thought about it directly for a while, but it was, uh, I know there was a team, Peter Matheson, mm. who wound up writing a book called The, uh, the Mountain, Under the Mountain Wall, I think, right. and then... Uh, Michael Rockefeller, who really wound up he, uh, uh, his I, I went, what is it, the museum? Went, the museum, one of the big museums, and he had an amazing collection yeah. of what called primitive art. Again, mm. I think not. Again, he had, I think his understanding of looking at it was anything but, as I said, the uh, one-dimensional view of what primitive was. And then there was a, a film, uh, other Dead Birds. I can't remember. You know, uh, it's been a while. Uh, who the filmmaker who did it I mean but there's a group of them that went in and they went in because they knew things were about again positive negative tourism in all its mm -hmm. forms shifting and changing places that were remote were getting less remote and the uh, I think they uh, wanted to record in various ways through film art uh, stories uh, what the culture was as they, you know, experienced right. it. And so for me, you know, going into that or going up the, the Sepik River to villages that there was really no place to stay in and the company that I uh, was working for, <laughs> you know, yeah. built a yacht just to use the floating hotel boat, boat, you know, base, and then we used motorized dugouts to get access to places like the Shambri Rivers, et cetera. And so sometime I'd be, you know, sitting around the fire, chewing betel nut with tribal chiefs, I mean, on, you know, one level, and just exchanging uh, stories. But I think there's another, since you bring it up, you bring up, let's see if, I think you might have mentioned it. Let me what is see it? the, uh, is it? <laughs> Sorry, if I can... Uh, market but it was like that connected with another the other poem about Papua New Guinea I think yeah, that was that. true I think that's a different book oh is it <laughs> I don't know where traders. I don't know which I don't know which one that is I think that was um see the traders <clears throat> yeah 
You had been so meticulous with your planning, too. Well, yeah, no, I wasn't, too. Okay, so this, I mean, kind of ties in. It comes yeah. out of the book Breakfast Jazz. And just to tie it into, you know, expand, you know basically traders, uh, New Guinea Highlanders with boar's tusks in their noses and spears pointing down trails, walk naked, wild mountains, dreaming of color television. Burnt-out businessmen with ailing, anal, alimony allotments and guerrilla warfaring sons and daughters dream of grass hut, bird song, fish, fishing, flowering mornings. Newsstand headlines all speaking about the economy in crisis, and all around these reports are front-page pictures of beautiful women elegantly dressed or undressed with subtle and not-so-subtle sweet seductive smiles. You don't have to look very far to see the economy doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> We're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the I think the uh, point of that is the juxtaposition of cultures of what we look for in, you know, developed worlds many times right. to get away to what we think of as paradise, yeah. you know, an image of paradise. And for, uh, for many people in other cultures looking, you know, Hollywood is paradise, right. you know, uh, and so I've seen that young people could be in Bali, where Bali was an image yeah, of absolutely. you know paradise. And then talking to young Balinese uh, years ago that were wanted to know everything right. they could about Hollywood and the West. And uh, so there's this always paradise as being somewhere out there, somewhere instead else. of somewhere else, <laughs> other than where we are you know, in the moment. Uh, right. So but, that that's you know that's. That's, you know, endless. I mean, and I'll interject a thing. I mean, on a, uh, it makes me think of that, was getting into Bhutan when it was opening up. Oh, and it right. was very restricted in terms of the amount of people that could go in there. This is we're now talking the Himalayas. The, the Himalayas, Himalayas right. Near, near Nepal. And I think they had looked over, you know, the, you know, uh, the Bhutanese or the king had looked over to Nepal. We had thrust its doors open to tourism in the 60s, in particular in that area. Right. And uh, so there were a lot of the young people were, it was, you know, disjointed. Uh, it became right. thrust between these two cultures. So uh, in Bhutan, it was more uh, restricted. Well, I was fortunate to have, through the help of my national guide, get an audience with Dingo Kensa Rinpoche, who was the spiritual head of Bhutan and a major teacher for the Dalai Lama, and so the Queen Mother had just been with uh, you know him for a week in retreat. Right. So she drove out. We drove in, and they, they had just kind of had built a new road system, and the young guys were driving like new Toyotas, uh, etc. And so we were able to go in and sit. It was you know simple. I mean, he was had a bunch of young right. you know, students in front of him. He's talking, and we were there just in the presence of this man. It was very very simple. But there was, an, you know, this inner, you know, kind of um, amazing. It would be like, you know, when you're in, around the presence of the Dalai Lama, right. he can be very, very extremely profound when you read his teachings, but he could just be very simple, you know, in his presence. Uh, and uh, so my group, of course, was ecstatic. I mean, didn't expect it. And right. so was I. I mean, in a sense, just having this honor. So we, we leave, we go out, we jump into these, uh, you know, these uh, little, you know, Toyotas, I jump into the last guide with a car with a national guide, local guide. Local guide takes a cassette, he puts it in to his machine, and it's uh, Madonna singing, I Want Your Body. <laughs> so I think right. there it was in a nutshell, Dingo Cancer, Rinpoche, and Madonna. Yeah, there it is, right. 
And you see that kind of juxtaposition all over the you know right. the world in that sense. Right. You know, and that's a surface level of this incredible you know uh, yeah I, we want to look at a positive negative of, uh, right. of uh, a combination of both that you sure. see everywhere you go in the world. Well, and I think that that's, you know, I know that Hegel, it may have actually been Kant that came up with this dialectic, the thesis, antithesis, uh, synthesis. But I think there's a certain amount of intuitive sense that that makes, that, you know, you, you have a proposition, whether it be Western civilization, then you have the antithesis, quote, indigenous civilization, and where is the balance in between the synthesis? And I think that Hopefully we're all going through that, whether it be in extremes in terms of politics or culture or philosophy or economics, is that um, that there's some sort of truth on either end of the spectrum and how do we wind up finding the balance within ourselves right. and within civilization as a whole. I think we have to find it. And if we can look at it that way, that everybody in some capacity has something to teach, <laughs> even mm-hmm. if it's what not to do, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and there's obviously plenty of that going on. Then I, you know, I think that is valuable. So there is something to Western civilization. I think it's easy right. to be, crit, you know, hypercritical right. of it to Absolutely. the point where we yeah. forget that there's actually benefits in terms of science and technology. Right. Um, but then it's clearly gone too far in terms of disassociating from the earth and ourselves and right. relationships with uh, other species. But uh, yeah, so I think that's a great way to to capture especially with New Guinea and those, right. those juxtapositions of imagery uh, on, on what we're all still kind of grappling with. Uh, and that's why it's so fascinating that you were, you know, one of the first um, being able to lead the charge of what has now become more of a global for those that have the capacity the leisure to travel, which is still a small minority, but nonetheless, in places like the West, it's something that is almost a rites of passage. If you go to college, there's some expectation that you should probably travel somewhere else. And and for those that have not had the luxury, at least being able to be exposed to movies, to music, to ideas that may have even originated somewhere else. Right. Which And that's what's fascinating. So the one thing I'll say... Um, because it's just bringing up some thoughts for me. This idea of globalization is, in fact, an ancient uh, trend. Uh, The Silk Roads or the Silk Routes that united China and Rome, uh, these were things that crisscrossed Europe and Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and it was not only goods and services, but it was ideas, it was religions. And so there's always been cross-pollination. When we think of historically how we've studied culture, uh, in civilization, it's in isolation, but nothing's in isolation. Even right. in quote antiquity, um, there was always a lot of interaction and cultural diffusion. And so, I think that what you're doing is just bringing up that trend in a more modern way, right. where the average person has access to reading, to thinking about these, and in some capacity, maybe experiencing a bit of that themselves. And and I think that's uh, if there's any kind of prospect for hope it's that we might all learn to be less fearful of the other and right. more curious. No, I, you know, so back in, you know, the mid-late 60s, I mean, uh, literally the ends of the world where Europe, if you went, wanted to get there, you went by ship. And uh, the odds, I mean, very few, um, you know, a small percentage of people were able to do that. And if you were, you know, uh, fortunate to found a way to do it as a student, I mean, you could, you know, was the dream was to go to Europe and hitchhike around Europe. Right. 
you know, so uh, I think my first trip was as, you know, as a student, you know, out of the, the country and going to Belgium and France and the uh, England and Scotland and hitchhiking around. And uh, the, but what, what always I find interesting today, a lot of young people I run into, it's not that they're going to Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, mm -hmm. Thailand, and, you know, traveling around Asia. And right. so that is, is, uh, it's just on that level, uh, you know, that yeah. which what nobody's even thinking about those places, let alone even knowing where they were, so to speak, for right, average yeah, student. Exactly. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the other thing that comes up for me, uh, talking about uh, Dingo Kinsa Rinpoche, uh, the Dalai Lama, was, uh, you know, I've probably mentioned this many times, you know, when I was more actively, you know, giving travel talks. Was the, and I mentioned that you know Rusty Swiker, one of our astronauts, right. and so one of the things that always struck me is that we send our astronauts into space, and Tibetans would put their llamas in caves for three years, yeah. <laughs> and they would come up with similar conclusions. Right. And so one of the moments that really struck me was being Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, in a museum there, and they had some really interesting Tibetan relics, and I happened to ask the uh, the museum guide. There was a map there of the cosmos and I, I asked uh, her about it and she's and she's talked about it she said well the interesting thing it was uh uh you know uh created by tibetan lamas who were you know you know that before the use of telescopic instrumentation well, yeah. so uh so on that level it's that inner outer so it's accurate. So, so just to clarify, their maps of the cosmos that they could somehow was, was be accurate in, in it touch with, with in ways wow, that we might go into space to you know I'm simplifying it, and then the other I mean tying into that is Tibet was always the symbol of remoteness, literally the youth, the rooftop of the world to me. So uh, I got getting into uh, taking groups into China in the early 80s and they having the opportunity to take some of the early groups in Tibet when it was opening up mm -hmm. in the early 80s. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and so I thought, you know, so Tibet, again, the rooftop of the world and that we could actually get there. What that really, uh, you know, trying to tie in a little bit with your, what you were saying is that I you know, really symbolized for me that the whole planet had been tracked out and mapped and uh, with the technology that we had, right. you know, the entire kind of technology that made it possible to even do that in, in, um, in a relatively short period of time. But that said, it was the, the complexity of culture to me, what struck me was totally right. mind-boggling. So on one level, it becomes simple uh, to be able to have access to these areas, but the complexity of uh, culture, yes, became uh, more and more... Uh, you know, so again, it just re re reads back, you know, curiosity, you know, it's more questions. Right. And so people many times say to me, you, you know, I've been everywhere you've seen all kind of, well, I've, you know, I don't even feel I've even scratched a little dust off the surface because it's like the old adage, you know, the more you learn, the more you realize what you don't know. Exactly. And so opening up one door, it opens, there are 10 doors behind that and it goes on exponentially. Right. Like an extra painting, it just keeps, you know, so... Well, I think what's great about that, just tying it back into the, the theme of the podcast, is that travel really is the best generator, in my experience, the older you get, uh, especially the more uh, foreign or unfamiliar a place and a culture might be, to generate curiosity to 
and then subsequently a lot of questions might come up, but then also you're then consciously, unconsciously juxtaposing it with where you're from, and so it leads to possibility. What if things can be this way, that way? And, uh, and I think that what it always winds up doing for me is that when I come back home, all of a sudden I start seeing home in a new way, in a novel mm-hmm. way. I start seeing it in a way that I've taken for granted. So then it allows you to have more curiosity more greater sense of the questions that might be overlooked when you come back and even the possibility of home that you've gotten so habituated to that you are walking in lockstep rather than seeing it's still a field of potential so yeah travel is is wonderful in that way and i do believe i just thinking of some of the poems i'm not sure if this one's on the list or not, but you were talking about Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar, looking at this museum. Right. Is one of those on the list? What's this one? Uh, well, you can read that you one. Mentioned after. this, maybe it was... Well, either way, but I just I thought that was a nice one because you were in Mongolia then yeah, that, traveling yeah, to, so I'm just trying to think which, to Beijing, but maybe I'm was. looking at a different... Oh, well, the exploratory tour was a South American... Uh, well, let's do that. The exploratory <laughs> trip's worth it because we did get the preface of uh, of uh, wild river rafting, so I think that's a good one. And then this does have a, th- of a certain kind of punchline that everyone likes to have this exotic image of various places, but often the, uh, the reality is a little more pedestrian, <laughs> to say the least. Okay, so I was, as a, you know, as a river guide... It was like the early 70s, so um, working for Ardor American River Association out of uh, Oakland. Yeah. Uh, amazing company uh, that were definitely pioneers uh, at that time and uh, you know, running uh, wild rivers. And, and so I was sent down uh, to Peru to do an exploratory trip uh, uh, near the Peruvian-Bolivian frontier. And when I got in there... The headlines, I think, on the Lima Times was they it had major monsoonal rains, and they were uh, evacuating people from the area that at Puerto Maldonado that I was supposed to be going into, <laughs> and I was told that the lodge that the this group initially would stay in before they went kind of up, uh, uh, up river was washed away, and mm-hmm. so I had to then I had to really get in there one way or the other to, you know. To right. find out if it was or not, you know. Uh, and so in, in the meantime, I was waiting for the weather to kind of shift and change before I could go in there. And I uh, I made the mistake. I think I got very uh, staying in a little kind of hostel uh, in Lima. And I uh, I made the mistake of drinking the the, lo- the tap water. Yeah. Which I never shouldn't have, but I thought, well, it can't really hurt me. Well, <laughs> I, so anyways, that's in the context, and uh, so I had to finally, when the, uh, uh, when the weather changed, I you know, flew up to Cusco and then down into the Amazon uh, to, port, you know, to uh, Rio Madre de Dios, one of the tributaries yeah. of the Amazon, to Puerto Maldonado, which was the jumping off point, and then was met by one of, you know, was, uh, one of the local guides, uh, you know, uh, travel with me. So in the jungle... Need the near the Peruvian and Bolivian frontier. Uh, got here in motorized dugouts and machete trails all day. Mission to set up a commercial river trip. With an Indian who grew up here and a Hungarian who's put in 20 years. 
raindrops the size of marbles, mosquitoes flying between them like birds. I've got dysentery from drinking polluted water in Lima, chewing Lomatel like candy, sucking lemons, sipping the Hungarian's hundred-plus proof home brew. Sure cure, he says, doesn't help. The latter is helping them as they listen to the Peru-Chilean soccer game on shortwave radio. I lie in a mosquito net under an umbrella of huge green leaves, periodically rushing into the black open jungle mouth to soothe my rumbling stomach. Insects sing like a tabernacle choir. Birds back them up with Dolby. Mosquitoes attack from all sides as I loosen my cloud of trousers. Crocodiles and snakes stick out their tongues. The soccer game takes over the territory. Birds, crocs, snakes, insects, rain momentarily stop. I observe myself hysterically laughing. Some people are going to pay thousands of dollars to get this truth. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, it's... I mean, you can take that to any number of levels you want. I mean, to, right. not to make it wrong. I mean, it's just a part of, you know, an interesting, you know, just pushing the edge in all kinds of ways. Inwardly, outwardly, right. people, you know, wanting to uh, have all the, I mean, the amount of experiences that are available to people today to oh, be able right. to go into areas they couldn't even imagine to dream of. And companies that have actually been set up to help facilitate that, right. I mean, allow people to be able to get out. Of those places, which you couldn't go into by yourself, you know, right. without, a, without a guide uh, that knew the terrain. Right. Well, I think what's interesting about that is it's a reminder to not romanticize excessively any destination because there's always the shadow side. In the case of what might be pristine parts of the world, often they can be underdeveloped in terms of sanitation or infrastructure, and then one pays the price and it's also the reminder of how fortunate we are right. that we don't think about clean water i know i can think of my own story in tegucigalpa honduras uh traveling in college where i either had an ice cube in a coke or maybe i just briefly put my toothbrush underwater i was pretty diligent it was something simple right. seemingly innocuous and i wound up having amoebas and it was like this fever dream for a week Right. You know, in this dingy hostel by myself. Yeah. And where this is where, like, you think you're almost going to die. Right. You know, you need help from other people. You don't know anyone. <laughs> and, and this is where you're like, travel sucks. <laughs> you know, you can see why people potentially want to leave right. some of these conditions. You had uh, violence in the mix, too. So I think those are always very good cautionary tales. That on one hand, it's good to have those experiences, um, not that one necessarily wants those experiences, but when it, you have those, all of a sudden your sense of the world and what you do have and what right. one should be grateful for just skyrockets yeah. because we so often, as mentioned, uh, just easily take for granted electricity, running yeah. water, central heating, you know, access to education, the job market, uh, democracy. <laughs> right. And so even though we seem to be going through a time where there is lots of chaos and challenges still, comparatively speaking, there's a reason why there's migrants wanting to 
travel throughout right. Central America to get to the United States. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, uh, yeah, I mean, that, uh, somehow, you know, that sense of, as they say, going to the ends of the earth uh, to have these experiences, but many times, I mean, the time we're moving into maybe beyond my lifetime is more, you know, all that is coming to us in the sense of the political situation, and I'm no political analyst, but uh, just a mix of cultures right. that we need to, you know, you find yourself living with in many, you know, especially urban areas, you know, and being able to have the skills of being able to communicate and understand culture right. and places, which is what's been happening anyways on that level. But in, in some sense, in the midst of the tragedy of what's happening these days, uh, people having to leave forcefully out of their countries, right. uh, it's putting in a situation for, you know, a, a demand of levels of communication right. that we never had before. And I don't mean to have any, I don't have any simple right. answers to, you know, to what that is. But again, this disposition uh, and when I was, you know, you know, still what I found with travel is that people, uh, many people, I mean, some of the early trips I went into, you know, were taking groups into there were undeveloped areas, and you had to pay a lot to go into these areas. I mean, right. they didn't have those things, but people were psychologically geared for that kind of experience. But what I saw more and more is, for many people, they wanted to have this feeling of being among the first to get into an area. Not that we were the first, even in my early trips. Yeah, I mean, sure. We were, you know, it's, we were preschool and that. But... Uh, that they, but they also wanted to have some kind of a five-star hotel waiting for them at the <laughs> yeah, end of the sure. day. So that what I had to, you know, find myself translating with is like, you know, the contradiction of that and joking yeah, and being right. humorous with that because that would come up, you know, and uh, uh, and so that kind of a thing, and it's gone, you know, even more from my experience. So not to negate what that is, but it's like how we deal with it, how we educate ourselves right. in relation <clears throat> to that. And so that can make it possible for people to open up, but hopefully still not to go to a place with the expectation that, and then have it to be just like it was right. when, when you were back, you know, when you were home. At, uh, right. And that kind of opens up into a whole other area altogether. But uh, Well, you know, I think what it makes me think like a nice way to, uh, to summarize or to close this conversation <clears throat> because inevitably this could go on all night long <laughs> and as we've talked about and it's worth stating that there will be a series of podcasts there could be other ones about travel but you've also written poetry about a lot of other topics as well as uh we have we've had a lot of ongoing conversations about a lot of other topics as well that i think would be interesting uh to to talk about eventually so <clears throat> what i want to do i think <clears throat> what we were just saying is perhaps maybe breakfast jazz, that poem, okay. yeah. could be a nice way to bring back the global to the local. Right. So I think this is a, a poem that does just that. And then perhaps at the end you can begin to talk about how does travel, which you've alluded to throughout the conversation, enrich one's experience where one's actually from, where one actually lives. Right. How does that, why, like, why does that matter? Why, right. why is it perhaps valuable to even leave one's home? How might it improve one's experience and right. interaction once right. one comes back? Yeah. So uh, this was one I, uh, that came out of, you know, uh, I was in San Francisco, uh, staying in Japantown in Miyako Hotel, and... Uh, 
Well, I'll just read the poem. It kind of speaks for itself. Breakfast jazz. Breakfast jazz pours over my Irish oatmeal in the Elka restaurant in Japan's Miyako Hotel where the San Francisco Film Festival's reception is being held in the garden room. Mandala winds. Apartheid flashback images popcorn in my mind. In Union Square, tourists Lombarda reggae with locals in the fog-filled, leaf-shaking, gold-rush air, while Santana guitar leaps out of a bouncing boombox between hip-hop homeless homeboys and Macy shoppers. A quarter of a million people flee savagery in Rwanda to the Tanzanian border. I remember drinking beer and dancing with Hutus and Tutsis. Wonder if the mountain gorillas have any borders that they can flee to. Home, home on the range between the chorus of cowboys needing spare change. The struggle for self-sufficiency while media monopolizes meaning. I poked through the World War ruins of the Austro-Hungarian Empire the missed understanding of Croatian, Macedonian, Montenegrins, and Slovine peoples, the holy war between Christians and Muslims and all other true believers. Languages, cultures, species disappearing, while people are having nervous breakdowns over whether they're wearing the right designer jeans and baseball caps, pulling out guns if someone has on the wrong colors. On this planetary ball of villages we dance on, we're still traveling as if the world was flat. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, and ironically, there's this whole movement. I don't know how widespread it is, but it seems to have generated popularity about saying the world is flat. Right. <laughs> which always mesmerizes me to where it seems like look at satellite images if you get up on a mountaintop high enough and, you, and you're not in the mountains you can see the curvature of the earth right. if you're high enough in a plane and you look out you can see the curvature of the earth so it seems that even just anecdotally for people that are traveling or have gotten up high enough right. you can see some of these things never mind actually looking at the evidence so I think that that's pretty interesting that that poem was written, what, 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and yet, rather than making progress, which we have in many ways, yeah. there's also this kind of retrograde movement where people are so fearful of the novelty of all the changes, of all the collision of cultures and new technologies that the only place that seems to be safe is backwards. Right. <laughs> but, but that, of course, is just amplifying ethnocentrism, um, various kinds of, of clashes of culture and gender right. and politics yeah. and so forth. So yeah, how, how do you think about that poem and your own travels and yet bringing it back to right. you know California? Well, it brings it back to myself. You know, like how we can get caught up in trivial what's in our mind or whatever of things that have, you know, in the bigger picture, have no significance whatsoever. <laughs> but I mean, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. 
I'm thinking of Eckhart Tolle talking about pain body. You yeah, know, he right. just hit a nerve. I mean, some stuff, like stories we carry that we've right. been carrying them for years. We're not even conscious about them, you right. know. And it's like, how do we change those stories that we are no, no longer useful to us? And, uh, and that's a daily practice, you know, to just be aware of one's own mind. Right. So I don't separate myself from any of it. You know, it's like, what are those parts within myself that I'll get yeah. unconsciously I bogged down in and get worried about or stressed out about and then suddenly in a moment of quiet meditation observe that and go wait a minute what is that what is that in relationship to some of the other stuff that is really like in this poem that's going around right. how do I correct those things uh, you know within myself right. Uh, right well I love that sense of perhaps travel an exposure might just be in Chinatown or Koreatown yeah. or little Ethiopia, wherever it might be yeah, in Los Angeles or New York. Uh, that can also be a proxy for travel um, and perhaps more achievable. But uh, the idea of what stories are we telling? As soon as there is this interaction with other cultures and places and then you immediately begin to see the narratives that you're telling because it's in contrast to the narratives that you see. And so then one begins to at least have this self-reflective sense of, like, well, what stories might have value? What other stories could we tell? So when you see the interaction of other stories, for better and for worse, there's always that sense of possibility. What might be possible? And I think one sees a hallmark of innovation in any sphere is the cross-pollination of ideas. Um, and so I guess uh, to just leave this on uh, something hopeful for all of us is that kind of exposure, whether it be through literature or movies or music, or if we have the ability and the means to travel, or if it's cuisine, now we have so many ways to be exposed to a world of ideas and stories uh, that maybe the future lies within <clears throat> our ability to be comfortable and open yeah, and to, I, to yeah, hearing this. Yeah, here we are in a, sitting in the foothills of a uh, cabin of an Arnold in the foothills of the right. Sierra and uh, you know, living up here, you were raised up here and I work at Ironstone Vineyards, and which is a kind of a magnet for a lot of people. So literally, have people, you know, coming. Literally, we've had people come from uh, representatives from every state, people from all over the country coming up here, because that's their idea. Right. In China, which had been closed for years, I suddenly find myself. You know, different times, I've had groups of Chinese students, you know, young students <laughs> that I'm taking around, spending an hour and a half with, taking them around the vineyards and. Right. Uh, <clears throat> And I tell them, you know, when I was going into China, none of them were born yeah, right. at that point. And now they're traveling over here and it can, you know, go, you know, on and on. But again, it's like I find that very interesting. And so having to travel, you know, well over, you know, a million and a couple of miles around yeah. the planet. Now I'm just taking people around, you know, there's vineyards and it's, uh, you know, appreciative of the help that I got, you know, in these different places and just, you know, having conversations with people that are coming up here and right. interested in gold rush history and how California got to be what it is today. Uh, right. Yeah, well, I think you really embody that that adage that has become well-known, think globally, act locally. Yeah. And, yeah, that global mindset, if then translated into what it is we're doing, can really, I think, uh, reap a lot of benefits. So 
anything to add before we sign off on this podcast right. and we'll do a part two <laughs> yeah. in the future? No, I can't add anything right now. All right, Dad. Well, thanks so much. No, this has been a pleasure yeah, and fun to revisit. Fun to sit here with you. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, uh, to be continued. Yes. All right.